Well, it's good to be able to talk about uh, this uh, question. We're doing our, our deep uh, question series, which are uh, kind of uh, more of a, a lecture than a, than a sermon uh, in a lot of respects. And so hopefully you've gotten that uh, substantial note packet uh, there that'll, be a, that'll serve as a guide um, as we uh, unpack this question, which is a popular uh, question today of, of, is Christianity harmful uh, for transgender uh, teenagers? Think about this statement. Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? This is what some therapists and counselors tell parents when their child is thinking about transitioning. Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? An expression that has tremendous emotional weight. The underlying assumption is that if you do not affirm them in their decision, then you're jeopardizing their mental health to the point of suicide. And this is backed up by data about the amount of suicides among transgender teenagers. And it holds people captive. It binds them. We believe the Bible is clear about the goodness of our God-given genders. Genders that align with our biological sex. And God made them male and female. As Deuteronomy tells us that we are to represent our gender in the way that we dress, in the way that we act. And yet this is pushed against in society today, the goodness of how God has designed it, even of uh, a Christians seeking to try to push against this view. We'll get to that. With our students, we spent seven, eight weeks talking about LGBT issues, um, among other, other issues, uh, unpacking various angles of, of this movement and this relationship with Christianity. In fact, this fall, we're going to unpack uh, even further and assess how the worldview is formed and, and compare it with the Christian worldview. Uh, but tonight, if I'm successful, I want to summarize some of the kind of emotional objections to the Christian uh, understanding, to the traditional understanding, to the understanding everybody had up until re- very recently. Uh, we'll look at three objections and then seek to answer two questions that are related to these objections. So I'm going to get right into it and we're going to uh, power through this uh, rapidly because we do have a lot of material to cover. First objection, the traditional biblical position causes people to leave the church. And so maybe a little bit softer, we'll, we'll get to the kind of weightier uh, suicide uh, objections later, but this is the traditional biblical position causes people to leave the church. With this objection, I'll be pulling from um, a lecture that was given at my seminary by a, a counselor who deals uh, primarily with those who are affected with uh, same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Uh, I don't think it's right to repeat the stories uh, that he told of of those he counseled, but I do want to give some data from his lecture. Um, He pulled from data from a study done by Andrew Martin, which surveyed uh, 1,712 LGBT uh, people across the U.S. uh, answering uh, these questions. So according to uh, this uh, data, about half of 
uh, LGBT people left the church at 18. About half. But only 3% said it was because of their church's stance um, on sexuality. So only 3% said it's because of what the church taught uh, on uh, sexuality. So why did they leave? Why did they leave? Uh, 18% left because they said they didn't feel safe. 14% because of a relational disconnect from leaders. 13% left because they thought thought the church was hypocritical in allowing some sins and condemning others. 12% because they felt people were unwilling to talk openly and honestly about these kind of issues. 9% because they were were asked to leave because of their identification or practice. Uh, So what does this mean uh, for us? One thing is that we have to be careful when we think through this issue. Today, shame over sin can be equated with harm. That's not good. Is healthy to have shame over sin. Shame can drive us to the cross for forgiveness and for healing. With that said, we do want to be a safe place for people struggling in these areas who desire to learn and grow. All of us are in process. While some of the reasons people left we cannot change, such as our position, this is crucial, and people are caving on this. And we'll talk why uh, in a minute. We can never cave in our position. This is, this is God's, the goodness of God's intent for how he created us. He created things and they are good. Uh, we cannot call evil or um, sinful what God has called uh, good. But many of the things that, are, that come up can be solved by being a gracious, gentle, and compassionate community. Uh, we're called to be a, a gentle uh, community. I, I love how Paul, he, he's talking about his ministry among um, those at Thessalonica. And he says this, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother. He continues, So being affectionless desire of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you've become so very dear to us. You catch this idea of his gentleness, his his compassion, his care for those he's ministering to. Having uh, communities of care and compassion. Of being, yes, clear on what we stand, but also gracious and and loving uh, to all. We're also called to be a gracious community. A, a gracious community. We know this um, in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Many of you may be, even be able to, to quote this. For gr- by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. We didn't save ourselves. Each and every one of us is needy before our God. This should shape the way that we view others. We hold to our sexual ethic not because it's convenient for us, but because we trust 
the God who is gracious to save us. And we desire his best for others. Each of us in various areas of our life have to die to ourselves. Have to trust in God's plan over what we think is right in the moment. Each of us is needy and dependent on the grace of God. We have to be really careful of of thinking, of course God saved me because I've sinned this way. Uh, But there's no chance for that individual. Yes, if people come to Christ, that means dying to the sin in their life. But we have to be careful of thinking certain sins are uh, unable to be died to. Unable to be able to be turned from. We should be a, a gracious community. I love this, and I put this quote in your notes as well. From Andrew Walker, he writes this. If our churches are to be marked by one thing, let it be grace. The grace that welcomes in always goes the extra mile, always forgives and never says enough. Church is to be a place of grace, a place where everyone, no matter what their background or struggles are, finds homes open and family offered. A place where the door is always open rather than a drawbridge drawn up. A place where people are listened to, loved, rather than stereotyped and lectured at. If you're a church member, whether you're a senior pastor, an elder, a young teenager, or a new Christian, you're called to serve that end. I just saw a pastor post this today. He he said, we have to realize that the ministry opportunity that we're going to have for those who are broken, those who are damaged by the gender ideology of today. That's going to be our ministry for decades to come. The harm that's happening right now. We have to be really careful uh, of, of assuming that everybody is being raised in a Christian worldview like we are? How many kids, how many uh, teenagers, how many are growing up and this is the air that they breathe? The world calling good what God has said is evil, is off limits. And just how pervasive that is, how challenging that is uh, in a culture. And being gracious to uh, slowly teach and redirect. Well, not only is there an argument against teens leaving the church, but some say that the Christian position itself should be an affirming position. Just yesterday, a Christian publisher put this out on Twitter. Uh, so this is Erdman's, who is... You're in... Uh, Grand Rapids, right? Uh, Wherever you uh, stand or whatever you think you know, uh, we'll unpack that for the whole message. Uh, Pride Month is an important time to take a step back to listen to real stories, to seek to understand. Here's some books that help you do that. And here's a link to five of their resources that they have published, a Christian publisher, that are all affirming resources. In other words, what they're saying is, if you think you know something, let us educate you on what you should be knowing and what you should be believing. Well, they deleted this after the backlash of pastors on Twitter, but it's still up on Facebook. 
pushing an agenda, saying this is what Christians must do. And why? Because here is the, the underlying thought, here is the underlying logic behind that. Is, uh, and and you've, you've heard this before. Maybe. If Christians are loving, they should affirm. If Christians are loving, they should affirm. Where do we get that from? What what is behind that? Why would we say that? Well, there's an underlying logic to this. There's an underlying uh, system of thought uh, that that is being seen. This is... Got it. All right. Maybe. All right. Here's the underlying logic. Uh, one, Christians are called to love everyone. Right. We know that we're called to love in, in Scripture. To love someone is to affirm them. So that's premise two. And then here's the conclusion. Therefore, Christians should affirm those in the LGBT community. Right. So Christians are called to love everyone. To love someone is to affirm them. Therefore, Christians should affirm those in the LGBT community. This is the logic that is being levied, the underlying logic. And there's a lot riding on number two, isn't there? And what some of us, many of us would say is number two just doesn't make any sense at all. Many in today's culture would say, how could you not see that number two makes sense? Number two is just Basic facts, according to many in our culture. You are who you express yourself to be, and if people are loving you, then they will affirm whatever you're expressing yourself to be. Watch a Disney movie. And watch even family members try to attack premise number two and be turned into villains within the movie. If you want to unpack that further, uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self, is, is good on that. Or his, his newer, uh, shorter book, uh, Strange New World. So this is the un, unspoken logic. I want to unpack this in two ways. One, that logic doesn't align with Scripture. Logic doesn't align with Scripture. And this should be the most important for us. <clears throat> Scripture clearly teaches that rebuke and hard words are necessary and helpful. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6, Better is the rebuke, open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of enemies. A painful rebuke of someone is a better indicator of their faithfulness towards you than someone who refuses to do what is hard to maintain a false or hidden peace. In other words, those on social media simply clamoring to approve of everyone who transitions, those are the kisses of an enemy, according to Scripture. Proverbs 28.23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. 
uncomfortable honesty is more important than taking the easy way and saying what someone wants to hear. It's a mark of what it means to be a biblical friend. If you're unwilling to speak hard words when needed to others, you aren't a friend, you're a fan. You're not a biblical friend, you're simply a fan. So you see, it doesn't align with Scripture, because Scripture is telling us, actually, it's a good thing to be rebuked for for, uh, your behavior, to be rebuked for things that you believe, even. But it also doesn't align uh, with our own experience, right? Our own experience. And we should expect this, because uh, here's something that we have to understand. Christianity is true. This shouldn't be a shock. Christianity is true. Therefore, it makes sense. Therefore, it aligns with reality. Right. Um, we, we talked about the students this way. Christianity is both rational and supra-rational. It's rational in that it aligns with right reason. And it's supra-rational in that it's bigger than we can even comprehend. Think about the Trinity. It's bigger than we actually can comprehend. It's just amazing. And yet it doesn't contradict reason. Because God is one and three in different ways. What's interesting of gender ideology and others is, is that it's trying to push for irrationality. It does not align with right reason. Understanding uh, gender ideology as religion can be really helpful. Um, religion really is a irrational cult. Christianity aligns with right reason, so we should expect it to align with experience. If the second thing is true, to love someone is to affirm it, then we should see this in real life and not just on posters and billboards. Think about what it would be like for me to celebrate my kids playing in the middle of the road. I live on Bass Road, and right there, the, the speed limit's 55, and the cars do 75, 80. I don't, I don't know. They just fly down that road. And if my kids thought it was the best thing ever to play in the middle of the road, it would not be loving for me to champion what they're doing. Dad, stop being mean. Like, I just want to do this. Let me be me. Let me live my truth in the middle of the road. No, this is not good for you. It's not loving for me to celebrate and clap as you're playing in the middle of the road. Get your butt out of the road. Like, I love you too much. I'm going to grab you by the ear if I have to, and I'll drag you out. Because I love you too much to let you encounter that damage that's going to come from you thinking that this is the best way for you to live. To love you is not to affirm you in your decision and your truth right now. There is is one truth, and that's God's truth. We have truthful thoughts when we align our thoughts with the thoughts of God, as Edward said. I'm getting into it now. 
So we can see this logic just doesn't hold up, but it's persuasive to many. It's persuasive to many because it's, it's just the, the air that they breathe, the water that they drink. <clears throat> but it rarely stops at mere acceptance. It also deals with how we relate to people. We'll see how it relates to protecting uh, the vulnerable. Uh, objection three, love demands that we protect the vulnerable. The conversation, especially around transgender issues, is often framed as a way uh, to prevent bullying and protect the vulnerable. Now, protecting the vulnerable is vital for us as Christians. James instructs us of this. James 1, uh, verse 27, and it should be in your, your notes there. Religion that is pure and non-defiled before the, Lord, the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To, to visit those who are vulnerable, to be with those who are, who are needy. That's what religion that is pure and undefiled before God is. Right? When it comes to LGBT issues, it quickly becomes loving the vulnerable through affirmation and acceptance. This then is related to protection, particularly the protection of rights. Right? Uh, we'll look at this uh, association and the idea of, of, of who is uh, the vulnerable. So, love means acceptance, and acceptance means protection, specifically protection of rights. Um, well, equality for all, this is what is often talked about when we talk about protection of rights, doesn't work in competing worldviews, particularly when one of those worldviews is irrational. Right? Um, the problem with the phrase is that it aims at an unachievable goal. When worldviews are at play, there's competing definitions of equality. If marriage is between a man and a woman, it is not equal for a man to marry and a man uh, uh, not to marry. In fact, um, so if, if the definition of man, uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, all men are free to marry... <laughs> The logical, the, the necessary thing is you marry a woman. Right? You, can't, you don't change the definition and then call that marriage. Um, it's like if somebody said, I am um, a, a pacifist wanted to join the army. Right? So we're going to change the definition of what the armed services are so that this pacifist who doesn't believe in war, who doesn't want to fight, uh, can be part of the armed services. No, that doesn't, you can't do that. They're free to join. They're free to enlist. We're not going to change the definition of what that is. And that's what we have often uh, today. If people refuse to enter into that as it's defined, it doesn't mean there's no equality for them. It simply means they choose not to participate in that kind of union or that kind of whatever it might be. In the same way, it would not uh, be right to change what it means to be the military, to accommodate one person. To accommodate that person, you're necessarily discriminating against other people. And this is what happens when worldviews collide. To accommodate one group is to discriminate and um, go against uh, another uh, group. And others are forced to compromise uh, their beliefs. Same thing happens when it comes to transgenderism. For some to feel accepted, others have to compromise what they believe and hold dear. 
This is where transgenderism touches on reality and definitions right from the get-go. Homosexuality tends to have this effect when marriage is brought up because it means that others must give approval of the union and the name attached to it. But transgenderism does this from the starting line because it often demands pronoun usage and other benefits of being the opposite sex. So right away, there's an there's immediate clash of worldviews, immediate discrimination of others. One other thing that we need to understand, especially as we think about this, the, the main title of the message of, is this harmful um, to, uh, to teenagers specifically, is that therapeutic protection and physical protections are often at odds. Even if it were true that acceptance means protection across the board and doesn't alienate others, we have to ask protection from what? The idea is protection from trauma or emotional strain on an individual. We'll look at this more closely in a little bit. But here we need to understand that if we protect someone in terms of giving them what they want, it might harm them physically. If they undergo surgery, they will later regret. I also have to ask the question, who is being bullied? When worldviews are at play, sometimes affirming one group means bullying another group. It's not as easy as everyone wins when reality is at stake. Companies that want to be an ally typically support LGBT causes regardless of what their employees believe. Sometimes this means extra vacation days for those who participate in pride events. Other times it means promotions if you fit into the company's culture. To celebrate one thing, in this case, is to alienate another. Another thing that we have to ask is, who is, being, who is determining who is vulnerable? Who is determining the vulnerable and what is the best way to love them? For Christians, we can say that the best way to love someone is to point them to God who created them, loves them, and knows what's best for them. God didn't make a mistake when he made them or designed the world to function a certain way. God didn't bring sin into the world, but he did provide a way for us to find forgiveness and healing through Jesus' atonement. There's certainly those under the power and influence of, of others and some who are genuinely confused, and we should care for them and love them while pointing them to the truth. Right, so the vulnerable often is said is the vulnerable are... Those who want to transition. What about those who are under the sway of others? What about those who are, are captive to, uh, to uh, and, being, and being celebrated and being pawns for another's agenda? Those who are undergoing surgery now so that parents or others appear progressive enough. They will regret it. Who's determining the vulnerable? We also have to understand that gender ideology makes women vulnerable. When gender ideology is embraced, women are vulnerable. We see this even with young women not being able to win in sporting events against biological men. 
We also see it with some trying to open up women's bathrooms, locker rooms, and prisons to those who identify as women. This puts women at risk and favors one group over another. It's not as simple as everyone should be treated equally. This marketing slogan doesn't make sense when applied to real-world situations. Another thing is the attack of women in general. When you have athletes trying to compete and seeing how much they can cripple themselves in order to compete against a woman. Listen very carefully. Women are not disadvantaged men. And that's exactly what this communicates. Men and women are both made in the image of God to reflect him uniquely in how they are made. We have to be very careful. Maybe you're convinced, maybe you're convinced from the beginning this is, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir in, in certain aspects. But we haven't faced the most powerful argument again. Or, or yet, and uh, we must turn to the relationship between kind of self-harm and LGBT uh, people, and this is an argument that's used often. What about self-harm? Right. <clears throat> Activists and others try to use this to convince parents and the general public about the need to embrace this new understanding of gender. We don't want people har- harming themselves, do we? Right. Right. i address this in uh, a few parts uh, first, the truth uh, um, that transitioning leads to more harm. Second, it doesn't address the underlying issues. And finally, the relationship with the statistics presented. Right. After uh, turning this, we'll, we'll look at um, how, to, how we do love others uh, well. Uh, first, transitioning leads to more self-harm. Transitioning leads to more self-harm. Not only are there many surgeries uh, irreversible, but they also lead to more depression. Uh, A long-term study of adults who had undergone sex reassignment surgery shows an increase in suicide after the surgery. An increase uh, after the surgery. Also, for girls who take puberty blockers, studies show that it does not decrease the rates of suicide. Uh, One governor uh, of a gender clinic in the UK resigned after the study showed that transitioning did not help, but in some cases was fast-tracking more harm. He did not want to participate in something he realized was doing more harm than anything else. There's often a study cited on the other side, a study that's supposed to show the benefits of transitioning. Um, The problem with that study and others like it is that Often the, da- the collected data um, is, is collected at an unspecified time after the transition. So it's not, um, it's not all the same. It's not uh, standardized. And they do not look at the mental health of those before they transitioned. Right? Um, and so what are you really comparing it to? If you're comparing it to an earlier stage after they transitioned, it might different, be different than what was it like beforehand. Right. Also, affirmative therapy does not address the underlying issues. 
That transitioning leads to more self-harm and depression is documented. We should also focus on the approach that therapy um, doesn't actually deal with real issues often. Uh, Many today adopt uh, affirmative therapy. Um, That means uh, that the therapist doesn't question someone who wants to transition. In fact, this is in uh, the uh, APA guidelines, um, suggests that uh, professionals should adopt uh, gender ideology themselves. uh, Psychologists are encouraged to adopt or modify their understanding of gender, broadening the range of variation viewed as healthy and normative. By understanding the spectrum of gender identities and gender expressions that exist, and that a person's gender identity may not be in full alignment with sex assigned at birth, psychologists can increase their capacity to assist uh, transgender and gender nonconforming people, their families, and their communities. So if you really want to help people, change your views on these things. Adopt uh, this ideology. Um, uh, Schreier asked us to consider, like, what, what would this look like if we looked at, at it with other body issues? Imagine that a young girl is anorexic and imagines that she's morbidly obese. She tells her therapist to call her fatty because that's how she sees herself. The APA then encourages all professionals to modify their understanding of fat girls to include people like her. Isn't loving to do this. <laughs> it wouldn't lead to uh, less harm, but more harm. Causing her to starve herself. It would fail to address what is causing the issue in the first place. And for her to find a sense of worth. In the same way, those who quickly affirm are failing to address the underlying issues. We also need to look at the relationship between statistics and causation. Uh, There's a common expression among those who deal with statistics. Correlation does not mean causation. Correlation does not mean causation. This means that just because one number increases when considering uh, one factor doesn't mean it's the cause of the increase. In this case, suicide attempts go up when looking at transgender youth. While statistics often say uh, 40%, 41% of uh, transgender youth um, uh, have suicidal thoughts or commit suicide, uh, the, the data does not follow uh, traditional uh, protocol for these kinds of studies, including follow-ups and in-person interviews. Schreier asks us to consider two questions to get a closer look at the statistics. One, is gender dysphoria causing these suicidal thoughts? And two, do we have any evidence that affirmation reduces mental health problems? And to give those two questions, it's really important. Is gender dysphoria, that is someone who um, is struggling with what they think about themselves and the body that they have, right? is that causing suicidal thoughts? And two, do we have any evidence that saying actually you are a boy, not a girl, reduces those thoughts? 
The answer to both is no. An academic study uh, showed this, and this is important. The mental health outcomes for adolescents with gender dysphoria were very similar to those with the same mental health issues who did not have gender dysphoria. In other words, we have no proof that gender dysphoria was responsible for suicidal ideation or tendency to self-harm. What that means, if somebody's struggling with many mental health things and gender dysphoria, they will have the same amount of suicidal thoughts as those who are struggling with those same the same mental health issues, but do not have gender dysphoria. That's extremely important for us to understand. Extremely uh, important for us to understand. Uh, So we should ask ourselves, what is more loving? It seems that the underlying issues are what cause uh, depression and suicidal tendencies, not the gender dysphoria itself. To affirm someone in their desired gender identity and move on does not address the underlying issues or reduce their depression or suicidal tendencies. Further, trying to affirm through medicine or surgery can do more damage than good and increase the dysphoria. Uh, Studies show that nearly 70% of those who experience childhood dysphoria outgrow it if they're not affirmed or socially transitioned. In fact, uh, as you'll notice, the the footnote there, that's on the low end of the spectrum. In fact, Ryan Anderson in his book, which is banned from Amazon, uh, When Harry Became Sally, it says uh, 80 to uh, 95%. If they uh, are not affirmed, they will outgrow it. And this is for those who have childhood gender dysphoria, not for those who develop it as a teenager or later in life, which would be even a greater percentage that outgrow it. Uh, Schreier discusses that when uh, teenagers are cut off from the Internet and from friends that affirm their identity for an extended time, nearly every one of them outgrow it. She lists a... Uh, a story in her book, and you'll notice that throughout the notes that I'm um, uh, noting uh, irreversible damage uh, by Abigail Schreier um, and pulling a lot of data from, from her. Um, she is not a Christian. Um, and in fact, she would affirm some things uh, within the LGBT movement um, and yet is very concerned about uh, transgenderism, specifically um, its effect on young girls um, and uh, has really... Um, her book is, is powerful in, in addressing a lot of those uh, issues. But she, she shares one story in there of um, uh, parents that were just at their wit's end of our uh, daughters thinking of transitioning. Like, what do we do? They sent her to a relative um, who lived on a horse farm and just kind of got away from technology, got away from everybody that was, that was kind of celebrating that decision. She lived there for a year and no thoughts at all um, about that as, as she came home. So in fact, that's one of the biggest things is unplug, get away from uh, some of those uh, influencing. We have to ask the question, especially in light of our culture that loves, that thinks this is the, the loving thing to do, right? And we, we know that because this is Pride Month, right? Like, it's just everywhere. 
What if affirming is the very opposite of loving? What if it's like calling an anorexic fatty and thinking we're helping? What if it's like cheering as kids play in the middle of the road? We, we should address this issue as far as uh, what God demands and what God has designed. We also should understand that what God has designed and what he has demanded is for our good. And it's loving and good to champion uh, what God has, has said. This leaves um, a really important thing for us to consider. Um, and that's uh, looking at these uh, underlying issues. What are these underlying issues? And taking a deeper look at these, these issues. Theologically and statistically, addressing these issues is important. If there's the same thoughts of suicide and uh, um, uh, self-harm, regardless of of the gender question, if there's something else going on underneath the surface, then this should be dealt with. This should be dealt with. We also see, theologically, um, God has designed us a certain way. Embracing that is God's best for us. We desire God's best for others, regardless of if they see it themselves. So what are uh, some of these underlying issues? I think uh, we need to look at this. Um, If transgenderism is simply a symptom of something else underneath the surface, we need to uh, deal with that. Otherwise, it's like noticing a dark spot on your skin and dyeing your skin to match the new color while never realizing it was caused by internal bleeding. It was a sign of something serious that needed to be addressed and you were simply trying to celebrate the sign. And so it is with this issue. There are often other things that need to be dealt with. I mentioned before that uh, in, a, in a seminary class, I had a, um, somebody come in, a counselor come in and uh, give um, uh, thoughts on, on this issue. And I thought it was helpful. He gave an illustration of um, a, a log uh, jam talking about the underlying issues of, of blocking up our natural uh, sexual development. And I thought it was uh, really helpful. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield says this, uh, how we express our sexuality is often more of a symptom of our life's condition than a cause, more a consequence than an origin. So it's it's coming out of something else that's happening, something else that's jammed up, something else that's that's, uh, in our our, our life. And we have to be really careful because what's often happened uh, just in culture and and how we hear this um, is that uh, everyone who struggles with this or is, is dealing with this is dealing with it in the exact same way. Um, and that's simply not true. Um, a lot could have, uh, people could have struggles in, in various ways, but it's manifesting itself in this. Right. The, I think it's, this is especially true with uh, young people. Because right. uh, uh, as uh, Schreier, I think, I think proved uh, in, in her book that this is kind of a social contagion often. And this is kind of an outlet for other things that are happening. In fact, um, in other countries, they didn't have a problem with uh, uh, something like anorexia um, until they started telling about all this 
all the uh, teenagers in America that were affected by anorexia. Then they had outbreaks of anorexia in other countries. Never had that issue, but now it's being advertised. Now it's being taught about, uh, don't do this, or whatever the case might be. And uh, everybody's kind of funneling into this direction. Um, And so uh, often it's it's these other underlying issues that are manifesting themselves that that are leaking out um, into uh, this area, which is really dangerous because um, unlike anorexia, um, this is being celebrated, right? This is, this is being uh, affirmed uh, at, the, at the outset. Well, here's from um, uh, the council and some of the, some of the th- things going on behind the scenes, some of these underlying issues that are important for us to understand. One, genetic vulnerabilities or abnormalities. Um, it could lead people to thinking that a solution to some of the things that uh, they experience, um, maybe even in how they look, um, or maybe even genetic things, they, they, could, um, they could go away, they could be solved um, by uh, transitioning. And so that could be um, one thing. I won't touch on all the um, abnormalities. Often activists use um, something like intersex or, uh, to kind of prove their case as if like, um, which the exception actually proves the rule. So if there's a slight percentage of um, those that uh, it's hard, kind of hard to tell male or female uh, that approve, that proves that there is male and female. Um, but they try to um, push that against. If you're curious about that, um, buy the book, not from Amazon, but somewhere else from here. Um, when here, uh, here became uh, Sally, and that's really, um, uh, Ryan Anderson does a great job unpacking and debunking all, all those statistics. Um, in fact, um, in every case, um, a doctor can, um, can tell uh, what, what um, someone, uh, someone is. <clears throat> uh, one, one thing to, to go back to that, um, that there are some cases that are, that are difficult, um, and even now that we have science, or we have things that can tell bef- more than generations before, Right? So there's a categorical difference between somebody who's rejecting their biological sex and somebody who uh, a, a doctor was wrong because they had a medical condition before. Right? Um, and so we do have to understand that there's a, uh, there, there's a difference there that doesn't happen now, but it, it may have um, before. Disconnection or enmeshment with parents. In other words, if there's not a good relationship with parents um, or... Um, kind of becoming one with parents, then that, that can be um, an issue that factors into this. In, in fact, uh, there was a, um, a story of, of um, one young man whose uh, father was a, a missionary, and he just grew up with his, his mom and uh, many, many sisters. And so uh, men became that, um, the, the mysterious other, right? because he wasn't around guys, just around... Uh, uh, female, and so he started to kind of develop same-sex attraction and things like that because of um, uh, not having that natural development of, of being around um, uh, other other guys. That doesn't mean that always is the case, but sometimes that can be one of these conditions um, behind the scenes. Abuse or trauma um, can be can be a big one. Masculine or feminine identity. This is one that we have to 
be aware of ourselves. We could fall into stereotypes of what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine. We're having a culture now where uh, there's no such thing as tomboy anymore. Well, if you, um, what before was a tomboy, well, now you should transition to be a boy because that's what you must be. No. And we have to be careful of these silly, constructed like, ideas of what, what a man is and what a woman is. They're not actually grounded in reality. Right? Uh, if you don't drive a truck, uh, if you drive a little car, uh, that doesn't mean you're uh, feminine. Right? Um, we have, to be, uh, we have to be careful of, of falling into those stereotypes or even enforcing those stereotypes even within the church ourself, right? So if you're a girl, your voice is low. If you're a guy, your voice is higher. That must mean X. Right? That's really a dangerous, uh, really dangerous thing. Sources of affirmation, who's affirming us, who's championing us, uh, that can certainly be a, a cause, um, something behind the scenes. Emotionally safe or intimate uh, friendships, who our uh, close friends are uh, can be uh, <clears throat> part of this. Again, uh, Schreier with talking about how it can become a craze among friends. Right. Uh, management of appetites. Uh, sometimes it can be giving in to cravings and temptations that only grow. Right? We have to l- understand that we live in a f- fallen, broken world that all of us are sinners. Right? Um, and this sin uh, can be manifest in various ways. We're all called to die to our sin, but giving in to our sin only causes it to grow. Only causes it to be uh, that much more powerful and influential uh, in our lives. And uh, it can become uh, uh, Overpowered the fact that we we believe somehow that this is kind of uh, who we are instead of something that we can die to. Uh, Surrender, so we just kind of give over to that uh, when that uh, grows. So he gave uh, this slide as well. So these uh, genetic vulnerabilities perhaps. Um, Perhaps it's uh, just more prone to certain things or background or context. All feed into uh, kind of the choices that we make and how we live in this life. Um, And as we kind of give in... Uh, when it's small, it grows um, enormous um, in our life and is, is overwhelming um, that this must be who I am. This must be my identity. Um, <clears throat> disagree with some of the things that uh, uh, Wesley Hill says, but I, th- I think this is helpful for uh, illustrating this. Uh, I once faced a temptation that was so persistent and so overwhelming that I literally believed my whole life uh, would, would go dark if I refused to give in. I know that whatever the complex origins of my own homosexuality are, there have been conscious choices I've made to indulge and therefore intensify probably my homoerotic inclinations. In other words, I gave into it and now it seems too powerful. Um, all of these background things, all of these things that are, that are going on that were not even thinking about addressing somebody who may have been abused, right? somebody who is, who is um, having uh, maybe difficult background information. that we, we don't even get to that because all we do is simply affirm somebody in what we think is going on. 
Uh, Ryan Anderson in his book has a story of someone who um, uh, lost their, their, their mom when, when she was young. And she looked like her mom. And the older she got, the more irritated she got with her own reflection. Like, I don't want to look like that anymore. Because I look like my mom. I'm going to do something to make sure I don't look like that. And so he's like, you don't like the way that you look? It must be this. And she writes about how angry she is with those who thought they were loving and forced her into certain, like that. She's like, it was my decision. Like, I did it, but like they were, they were just championing my every move. And like, they let me damage myself just because I said I wanted to. And just how angry she is. She's like, no, my, my issues were, were deeper than that. Uh, I struggled with this, and then I grew up in a family that it was difficult. And I, did, I just hated those around me. Never getting to that. Never actually dealing with that. Right? So how do we love? Here's the first option. Affirm, embrace, and concede. That's what society tells us. Affirm someone in what they think. Embrace them in their decision that they've made. Concede whatever you think might have been true to them. There's a lot of issues with this. This doesn't ever address those, those deeper lying issues. This is like what we read in Proverbs, that this is the kisses of an enemy. That our world is telling us that this is, uh, actually, they're saying this is love, and and Scripture is saying this is the kisses of an enemy. Option um, option two, maybe, no? Option two, (laughs) I jumped ahead. Love, empathize, and offer an alternative. So what do we do instead of affirming, embracing, and conceding? We love. We're called to love. We're to love everyone. We also know that loving never means going against God's word. It's desiring God's best for people. And therefore, we can't compromise the truth. But we can and should empathize. Here's another problem. That often people think that compassion or empathy means caving on biblical truth. That's not true. Right. We can enter in. We can uh, seek to understand uh, their, their struggle. Uh, we might not experience the same things that they do, but we do struggle with sin ourselves. We should especially desire to care for those who are being influenced by culture or past abuse or a terrible uh, situation that they found themselves in. This does not excuse their sin, but it does help us to understand and to love them in their struggle against it. We also should offer an alternative. Today there seems to be two options. 
The two options seem to be this for, for people who are maybe struggling with this. Deny who you really are and reject your LGBT identity or embrace it and be your true and free self. But scripture offers another story. It tells how our identity is more than who we might feel attracted to or what our relationship with our body might be. Scripture tells us that we are made by a God who loves us and knows what's best for us. Scripture tells us that this God takes care of us daily and that he sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we would be with him forever. It tells us that we have value, but that we are fallen. It tells us that we will experience difficulty in this life, but that one day the difficulty, the pain, the sin will go away. We should invite others into this alternative. We should show them that their vision of reality is too small and it doesn't offer the beauty, the hope, and the explanatory power of God's word. Do we understand that this is how God loved us? Jesus perfectly embodies the character of God as the God-man. He loved those who were mistreated, He cared for those who were on the outskirts of society. He taught his disciples and others to care for those who were hurting. He also sympathizes with us in our struggle against sin. As as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus Christ, risen in glory, cares for us deeply and is able to understand what we're going through. In fact, he understands the weight and the power of temptation more than we ever could. I love this quote from uh, from C.S. Lewis. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea in the uh, the current world is that, that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after only five minutes simply does not know how hard it would have been an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Christ also gives us a new way to live. He doesn't settle for a firm embrace concede, but gives us a beautiful vision. In fact, through him, we are new creations. We are living in a new and better way. He offers us true life. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, for even though they once according Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
the new has come. We're a new creation. Uh, new creation reality, the new heavens and the new earth uh, will come one day, and with that, the struggles of today will not be here anymore. But this reality has already begun for those who are in Christ. That we are a new creation, we belong to Him. That His life, His perfection becomes ours because of what He has done for us. You see, Jesus is both love and and truth embodied. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is love and truth, and they are not at odds. It would not be loving for him not to offend us. He can't just say we're good the way we are. Instead, he died for us because we're sinners. He calls us to a new way of life, a way that leaves the old behind. If we accept the flawed logic that says affirmation equals loving, then Jesus should have never died. then he should never have preached in a way that he told people to repent and believe. To repent means to turn from something, to turn from our sin and to trust in God. And this is what each of us is called to do. We do this knowing that he paid for our sin and knows what's best for us. Let's trust him. Let's gently call others to do the same. Do we trust God's plan? Do we trust it's truly loving? Let's come alongside others and point them to this way. There's, There's various voices that we have to have on this issue. Some, as we speak into culture, we simply speak truth boldly. We counter a culture that seeks to sway others this way. That's one voice. And there's another voice for those who are struggling. Those who are held captive by the principalities of this age. And we can come alongside them and, and plead with them and point them to God's best for them, even if they don't see it themselves. In a world that says, this is what love is, we have to be bold and compassionate enough to say, no, I love you too much to celebrate you dancing in the middle of the street. That's what we're called to do. Uh, Let's do both. Let's speak boldly into this culture and let's also compassionately come alongside others, pointing them to Jesus where that's our true hope. Our hope isn't in our, our goodness, our perfection. It's in his goodness and his perfection. Let's point others to that same hope. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for um, your word. Father, I thank you for your truth. Father, we're dependent on you. We're dependent on your truth. We pray for those who are, who are held captive um, today by, by the, the ideology of, of, of the day, by the, by the forces uh, that, are, that are pushing against your word. Father, that are, that are so persuasive to, to so many. Father, Breakthrough with your light. Father, you, uh, you are light. And you're able to shine in the midst of uh, things that seem the darkest. And Father, we pray that you um, 
that you awaken a generation, Father, that you prepare us, even as a church family, to those who are, who are hurting and damaged uh, by the forces of today. Help us to be a church that, uh, that come alongside and, and nurses them um, and points them uh, to your best for them. Father, we're dependent on you. We can't do this on our own. But we know that you are sufficient for the task. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.